One day, the Lord told Jonah, the son of Amittai, to go to the great city of Nineveh and say to the people, The Lord has seen your terrible sins. You are doomed. Instead, Jonah ran from the Lord, and he went to the seaport of Joppa and bought a ticket on a ship that was going to Spain. Then he got a ship and sailed away to escape. But the Lord made a strong wind blow, and such a bad storm came up that the ship was about to be broken to pieces. The sailors were frightened, and they all started praying to their gods. Even they threw the ship's cargo overboard to make the ship lighter. All this time, Jonah was down below deck, sound asleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep at this time, at a time like this? Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will have pity on us and keep us from drowning. Finally, the sailors got together and said, Let's, let, let's ask our God to show us who caused all this trouble. It turned out to be Jonah. They started asking him, Are you the one who brought all this trouble on us? What business are you in? Where do you come from? What is your country? Who are your people? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. When the sailors heard this, they were frightened because Jonah had already told them he was running from the Lord. They, then they said, Do you know what you have done? The storm kept getting worse until finally the sailors asked him, What shall we do with you to make the sea come down? Jonah told them, Throw me into the sea and it will come down. I'm the cause of this terrible storm. The sailors tried their best to row to shore, but they could not do it. And the storm kept getting worse every minute. So they prayed to the Lord, Please don't let us drown for taking this man's life. Don't hold us guilty for killing an innocent man. And the sea come down. The sailors were so terrified that they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made all kinds of promises. The Lord sent a big fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Second reading is from Jonah 3. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. 
but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent, and with that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And we continue our story in Jonah. Jonah chapter 4, 1 to 11. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed through the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose... God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So, why doesn't God punish wicked people as they deserve? Surely an all-powerful, all-loving God could and should intervene to prevent atrocities taking place. Hitler and Stalin between them were responsible for the deaths of millions of innocent people. Why did God let them get away with it for so long? Today, in the eyes of the world, ISIS and all it stands for is evil. Why does God allow it to pursue its campaign of ruthless destruction and death? Wait a minute, though. The ideology of ISIS is grounded in the belief that anyone who does not adhere to their fundamentalist interpretation of Islam is godless and wicked and deserves everything coming to them. They are implementing what they see as the judgment of God upon the world. When people take it upon themselves to execute what they believe is divine judgment against their enemies, the results are catastrophic. It's those who fervently believe that they are in the right, who divide the world into black and white, good and evil, and see themselves as good and the rest of the world as evil. They are the least able to see in their own actions when they are morally wrong. 
In a world where different people groups see themselves as being righteous and their enemies as being evil, violent consequences are sure to follow. So when we say, well, you know, if I were God, I'd sort them out. We need to be very careful because we're not God. I'm not saying that evil doesn't need to be resisted. Of course it does. But if we're classifying people into good and evil, we we need to be very careful. Because in an ideological struggle, those who engage in that struggle are always blind to their own errors and their own faults and sins. Think back to the debate that still rumbles on in World War II about the Allied bombing of German cities. We saw ourselves as being in the right, but was that a morally wrong act? All the time, you need to be aware of your own faults and failings if you're going to start to think about identifying the sins of others. Yet even if if we're kind of pacifists, even peace-loving, God-fearing people, those who would never take the sword into their own hands, agonise over why it is that the perpetrators of evil get away with it so much. How does God dispense justice? Where do we see it happening? Do Do we just say, oh well, they'll burn in hell at the end? Is that when God sorts it out? That's one solution as to how God judges wicked people. An older solution back before they believed in life after death is found in the ancient view that God visits the sons of the fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. You might think the wicked get away with it in their own lifetime, but if they don't don't suffer retribution themselves, their children and their grandchildren will. That was how it was viewed. Job considers this as an option, but dismisses it as inadequate. How often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out, he asks. How often does calamity come upon them, the fate that God allots in his anger? It's said that God stores up a man's punishment for his sons. Let him repay the man himself, so that he will know it. Let his own eyes see his destruction. Let him drink the wrath of the Almighty. This way Job considers the idea that retribution can extend to future generations and rejects it as inadequate. Job, the victim of undeserved suffering, struggles with the way in which people who seem to deserve God's judgment just get away with it, scot-free. In what Job explores at an individual level, the book of Jonah explores at a national level. Where is the God of justice? What is he doing? We know when Jonah lived because he gets an honourable mention in the book of Kings. 2 Kings chapter 14 records the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel. In the eyes of God, he was not a good king. He reigned for 41 years in Samaria, and in all that time, he did not turn away from any of the sins of his fathers. The eyes of the nation, he was a good king. He was the king who restored the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken through his servant Jonah. Now, of all the kings of Israel and Judah... Jeroboam II reigned the longest, 41 years. His reign was marked by a period when his country's borders were secure and the economy was booming. A bad king, but a good reign. But beneath the surface of prosperity and security, this was a period of huge social injustice and inequality. These are the evils denounced by Jonah's contemporary Amos. 
Yet notwithstanding this, under the reign of the godless king, the nation prospered, and Jeroboam carried on reigning, prospering at the expense of the poor for four decades. What was God about at that time? Why was he blessing the nation when they were under the control of a godless king? Why was he not protecting those vulnerable people who were being oppressed and exploited? And if you're looking for the confirmation that God was blessing Jeroboam, look at Jonah. Because Jonah prophesied that he would be the one who would regain the territory that Israel had lost in earlier wars. And Jonah's prophecy must have been right because it happened. The restoration of Israel's borders actually took place. Yet all the time Amos was busy going around denouncing what was going on. Yet God didn't seem to bring justice to the nation. Two prophets, two different perspectives, two different messages. God not acting with justice. At some point, we learn from the book of Jonah that God sent Jonah to Nineveh. But Jonah refused to go. And instead set off in the opposite direction until God intervened by means of a storm and a very obliging fish. Jonah, it seems, was a bit of a nationalistic prophet. Happy to say, you know, God is blessing his people, Israel. If God has something to say to a godless nation, those evil, wicked people over there, they have no right to hear God's word. That was his perspective, apparently. But having had bed and breakfast for three nights and a fish, Jonah spat out on the seashore, stomps into the city of Nineveh and proclaims God's message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned, he says. When the king hears the news, he covers himself in sackcloth, sits down in dust, calls the entire city to repentance. Jonah, meantime, camps on the hill outside the city waiting for fire and brimstone to descend and consume the inhabitants, which is what he thinks they deserve. When the deadline expires... And it becomes apparent that God has pardoned the city. Jonah is disgusted. This is precisely why he didn't want to make the journey in the first place. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew you were a God who relents from sending calamity, he moans. You just wanted to let them off the whole time. So you're not going to kill them. You might as well kill me because I've had enough. But God has a lesson to teach Jonah about compassion. And he allows this plant to grow up over him to give him shade from the sun. And when the plant dies, Jonah is really upset. God chides him gently. You're upset about a plant that's here today and gone tomorrow? What about the 120,000 people in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left? Shouldn't I be concerned about them, not to mention all the livestock that's there? So the book of Jonah reveals a God of compassion. A God who is extremely reluctant to unleash his judgment against the city of Nineveh, to punish the wicked as they deserved, because he feels sorry for the inhabitants. What, we might ask, with some justification, what about all the inhabitants of the cities that had been sacked by the Assyrian army? Didn't God feel sorry for them? We don't know precisely when Jonah's visit to Nineveh is supposed to have happened. During the time of King Jeroboam in Israel, it felt a bit as if the Assyrian superpower was having a rest from its relentless campaign of world domination. But the might 
and the ruthlessness of the Assyrian army were legendary. In the Bronze Age, they were pioneers of Iron Age weaponry. No one could withstand their might or the armour or the weapons that they used. They were experts at siege warfare. And they, defeated their, they treated their defeated enemies brutally. We see pictures of them cutting off hands and feet before impaling their victims on stakes. Boasting about cutting off noses, ears, gouging out eyes, covering walls with the skin of their enemies. Yes, if any nation richly deserved God's judgment, it was Assyria. And Nineveh, Nineveh was at the heart of that evil empire. And when Nineveh did eventually fall, the prophet Nahum shed no tears about it. Everyone who hears the news, he says, will clap their hands in applause because there is no one who has not felt your endless cruelty. So two very different depictions of the same city. The epicentre of an evil empire that needs to be wiped off the face of the earth for everybody else's sake. Or a city full of people going about their daily lives who just don't know any better. The ideology of good and evil against people for whom God feels compassion. And let's not forget all the Assyrian contributions to human development. The first to divide a circle into 360 degrees. The first to develop the magnifying glass, the library, the first plumbing and flush toilets, electric batteries, guitars, aqueducts, the first archway. What have the Assyrians ever done for us? So for better or for worse, the God in whom we believe is, as Jonah says, a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Almost as if when he punishes the wicked, he does so extremely reluctantly. And you can understand that because as we heard last week from Steve, there is no one who is not made in the image of God. There is no one whom God does not love. And yet God is a God of judgment. Eventually it comes. If the city of Nineveh was spared in the time of Jonah, it was destroyed decades later in the time of Nahum. Nahum clearly saw that as an outpouring of God's judgment. Their repentance was limited and temporary. They continued to go from bad to worse until eventually God said enough. But let's not forget either that God also judged Jonah's homeland, the nation of Israel. He allowed them to be conquered and sent into exile. And what nation did God use to do this? It was the nation of Assyria, of which the capital was Nineveh. There's extreme irony here. The nation of proverbial wickedness and cruelty is spared by God and is used by God to judge God's own people. How do you make sense of that? What on earth is going on? And the key to answering that question lies perhaps in the alacrity with which Nineveh repented when they heard Jonah's message. The city repenting in fasting and sackcloth and penitential prayers. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Their immediate response to the message proclaimed by a reluctant and bad-tempered Jonah needs to be compared with the response of God's own people, Israel, 
to a succession of prophets sent to them over a period of 200 years. Because by and large, calls to repentance were ignored by God's own people. Even in the book of Jonah itself, Jonah is extremely reluctant to do what God says. Whereas the pagan sailors, praying to their gods while Jonah's asleep, they prayed to God after Jonah's thrown into the sea. The people of Nineveh respond immediately to God's message, whereas Jonah had run away and done exactly the opposite of what God said. Somehow God's own prophet was far more blind and deaf and unresponsive to God than the pagan sailors and the people of Nineveh. He represents a nation, actually, that owned God but didn't listen to God. So Israel fell to Assyria a good century before Assyria itself was conquered and judged. But you see, Israel should have known better. The succession of prophets God had sent them increased their culpability when they got it wrong. Whereas according to what God says to Jonah, the people of Nineveh simply didn't know any better. This means when God judges people, he takes into account not just what we do, but how much we know. Jesus said, you've got ears to hear. Make sure you listen. Paul makes this clear in Romans. On judgment day, God will judge the secrets of people's hearts and they will be judged according to whether their own conscience accuses or condemns them. How have they acted in the light of what they know? Paul also warns of the dangers of passing judgment on others, putting ourselves in the right and them in the wrong. It's a dangerous thing to do when our own lives are not free from sin or exempt from his scrutiny. If we pass judgment on others, when we are guilty ourselves, we end up condemning ourselves as well. When it comes to sin, we are all in the same boat. None of us is perfect. All of us are sinful. But Christ died for all of us. So that all of us can have our sins dealt with and be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Make no mistake, God doesn't tolerate sin. He needs to deal with sin and he will deal with with it. Actually, he has dealt with it. Exposing human sinfulness, condemning it and enabling us to die to sin and live good lives through the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. But if we decline God's remedy for sin, then make no mistake, God will hold us accountable and we will be judged. But until that day when Jesus returns as judge of all the earth, God refrains from unleashing judgment, instead exercising compassion and restraint. It's not that God has gone soft. It is, as Paul says, that the kindness of God is there to lead us all to repentance. And if we harden our hearts against him, then we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. So that's why Jesus still hasn't come to judge the world. Because God waits and delays, spinning it out, so that as many people as possible have the chance to repent. While people are making up their minds, God will give them a chance to do so. When we went to Cambodia the other year, and Chomno was coming over in a couple of weeks' time, we met people who were responsible for atrocities in Cambodia, and you would have thought at the time, they deserve to be wiped from the earth because they were killing their countrymen by the thousands. Today, redeemed people, they are working for reconciliation. People who've received mercy 
rather than judgment and whose lives have been changed by the mercy of God. That is always God's preference. He would always rather save than destroy. And so he lets people get away with it for far longer than we would because he would rather they be rescued than judged. The trigger for Jesus' return may be that when things have got so bad, God will delay no longer. But this in turn leads to a question. If God were to call you to account for your life tonight, how would you stand? If the secrets of your heart were exposed, would you be comfortable with them being open to public scrutiny? Through anger or selfishness or laziness or greed, how much pain have you caused to those around you? Paul says there is no one who's righteous, not even one. But that's why God sent his son to be our saviour, to deliver us from the wrath to come. Jesus deals with our sin now so that we will not be condemned for it then. And he did this by taking your sin upon himself, dying with it. Rising from the dead to empower you to lead a new and different way of life under his lordship. Living in the light and the knowledge of his forgiveness and his love. God holds back his judgment of the world. God holds back his judgment of situations so that we can live in a time of grace. During which the door is open for anyone to come in. God doesn't treat us as we deserve. He shows us grace because it's in his heart to forgive us. The opportunity is there for us all in this time of grace to come to Jesus and accept him as Lord and Saviour and know ourselves loved, know ourselves forgiven, know ourselves accepted, know what it is to be made new by his grace. We wonder why God doesn't slam the door shut and judge the world. He keeps it open. Perhaps open so that you can come in by the time of grace is there. Let's pray. Lord, you know everyone's heart. We see what they do, but we can't see their hearts and their minds. And so, Lord, you know the difference between what we are on the outside and who we are on the inside. Thank you that your primary way of dealing with us is through mercy and compassion. Keep us from taking that for granted. Thank you that the door is open for us to find you. Give us the faith, the desire and the ability to respond to your grace with faith and trust. And Lord, we we ponder the mystery that we would unleash justice far quicker than you do. And we think of all those people crying out for deliverance, whose suffering is intense, who are enslaved by others, who are the victims of violence. Lord, deliver them from evil, we pray. And for the perpetrators of atrocities, would you deliver them from the evil that has them in their grip, in its grip. 
Show grace. Have mercy. Deliver us from evil. We ask these things in your name. Amen.